Welcome to Beatitudes, where your host, Dr. Kwamenique Sukina, will give you tools to experience wisdom in your everyday life. Listen each week as Dr. Kwamenique Sukina shares stories that will help guide your faith, perspective, and attitude in every situation. This is Dr. Sukina of Indigenous Messengers International, and here is our host. Today, we're going to talk about be teachable, therefore growable. I don't even know if growable is a word. <laughs> I'm going to call that one of my qualm-isms or qualm quotes, where I make up a new word that goes along with what we're learning today. Growth is not always an easy process. And most of the time, it usually costs us something to grow. And, and when I talk to you about the seed, the process of the seed going into the ground and dying and what that's like, it's a, growth is a costly thing. It's especially true when it comes to spiritual growth or growth in our character. At least that's how it's been for me. Some of my greatest growth in my life has come through difficult challenges. And a lot of my podcast talks about that. I've been through a lot of things. I've had a, I w- was with a therapist one time and I was running through some of the things I've been through. And she said, well, Kwamanik, you've had a full life. And I have. I've had a lot of things I've had to contend with. But God has used those challenges for me to bring me through growth and to give me wisdom. It seems that the difficulty, as the difficulty increased in my life, that it increased my desperation. And that desperation fueled my hunger for growth. So that's what my prayer is for, for you all today that are out there that are struggling, that that will increase the desperation in us toward growth, to move in those areas of growth. I remember when I first married my husband, how much growth was demanded of me in a very short time. I was kind of thrown into the situation and had to learn really fast. My husband, he's an Inupiat from Alaska and a member of a federally, federally recognized tribe from Alaska, commonly called Eskimo. Um, and he has a native mindset and he has a native view on life because he was raised in the village as a child before he was adopted out of there when he was about seven. So his formative years was in, was a fully immersive experience as a native child in, in, in Alaska. And this was in stark contrast to the environment that I'd been raised in because I was raised in the Euro-American or majority culture of the time. So we had two different kind of worldviews. Once we married, we combined our God-given talents and gifts, and we began the organization that we still have today called Indigenous Messengers International. And I just had a lot to learn. And he had a lot to learn from me as well. But, But I had more to unlearn. It was like being thrown into the water and learning to swim at the same time. It was a very intense time in my life. I had no idea what the residential schools were. If you don't, research it. I had no idea about kill the Indian to save the man slogan that was used to assimilate the Native Americans. If you don't, look it up, research it. And I had no idea about the smallpox blankets that were given to the natives. I had so much to learn. And as I said, even more to unlearn. It was a crash course in Native American history for me. And I had to learn very quickly. As I was traveling the U.S. with my husband, new husband, and all of his friends and peers, because at the time we were doing 
Many nations won voice with Richard, Twi- Richard and Catherine Twist doing conferences all over the United States and some internationally. And we were all just all together. And it was wonderful. It was also very new for me and, uh, and, and difficult. It was a difficult time uh, having to learn really quickly and knowing so little. I felt like a little child. Teaching, what we were doing at the time was teaching the institutions faith-based institutions that we'd all been a part of, that the Native people's drums and, and the regalia and our people themselves were not demonic, that that had been a false teaching, and that as the majority culture, which I had been a part of, that we still had a lot to learn around that. As a mixed-blood person separated from my Native culture, coming back to my culture, it just was not an easy process. And it isn't for any First Nations people that have lost that. They're trying to come back to it. And it's very humbling as well. There are difficult times as God pulled false teachings out of me and replaced it with His truth. But because I wasn't a youngster when this process began, you know, some of the thinking beliefs that I had were were solidly in there, kind of like a fossil. And I had to go into digging those things out. Uh, and things that I'd built my life on, thinking I knew that I knew that I knew and had security in, I had to reevaluate many things at that time and sort through them and keep what was God's foundational truth and throw out what was the traditions of men, or at least put them into that perspective. This is a tradition. I was learning about my Native culture, and I was also learning about the foundations of my faith at the same time. It wasn't easy, but it was very necessary. You might say I was working out my own salvation in fear and trembling as the scriptures exhort us to do. And when it says fear and trembling, that's what it means. I mean, it's not an easy process. But it wasn't all hard. There were some fun times in it. And I thank God for my sense of humor that allowed me to laugh at myself. I'll share one experience with you. Shortly after my husband and I married, we lived in an apartment overlooking a lake because my husband always wanted to live near either mountains or water to remind him of his home in Alaska. Our bedroom window overlooked the water there. And my husband would often get up in the mornings and watch the sunrise to greet the day. Being a night person, I have to admit to you that I'd never seen very many sunrises unless I just stayed up all night to see them. This one particular morning, I happened to wake up. It was probably around 4.38 in the morning, and my husband was still sleeping, so I was so excited. I'm like, I made it up before him. He's going to be so proud of me that I'm, I'm going to greet the day. And I decided to greet the day as part of my coming into my Native identity. You know, I'd been told there was Cherokee in my family line, And so I wanted to honor that. So I sat up on the side of the bed and I glazed out the window where I could see the sun on the horizon barely showing itself. I marveled at the deep golden glow against the horizon. You know, it was just kind of laying there right up above the water. And I sat there for a really long time. I was waiting really patiently for it to come up. I remember thinking, my goodness, how long does it take the sun to come up? So after about an hour of staring at this golden glow there on the horizon of the sun, I was beginning to lose my patience. I thought, well, I just don't have the patience that regular Native Americans who've lived in their culture, they must sit here for two to three hours. 
I just remember thinking, how long does it take for the sun to come up? So I, I happened to remember that I'd forgot, forgotten to put on my glasses. So I reached over to pick them up and I put them on my face. And when I looked back around, I realized I'd been looking at the street light. It wasn't really the sun. I had been staring at the street light for like an hour and a half to two hours. So I woke, I woke my husband up and I told him my experience. And I, was, and I told him myself. I might not should have done that, but I told him myself. And he said, oh, you urbanized Cherokee, you've forgotten what the sun looks like. We laughed a long time about that one. In fact, it became humorous. We told it to the other Native leaders that we'd meet up with on the road, and it became very humorous to them. We call it, we call it actually the Cherokee sunrise story. <laughs> and one time we're riding down the road following some of them in the car in front of us, and they stopped the car abruptly, and one got out and ran back to the car, and he pointed at the sun and said, Kwamanik, that's what the sun looks like. <laughs> because I wanted to learn about my Native culture and not offend the Natives, see, I wanted to be teachable. That's important. If we're not teachable, we can be offensive, and we don't even know why. So I wanted to not offend the Natives I was going to be coming in contact with, I wanted to learn about protocol. I wanted to honor the protocol. I wanted to understand the cultures that I would be encountering. And that's good for all of us to do if we're going into another culture, to do some research and try to, to go in as children, go in teachable, not going in like we've got the message for you and we know everything and we're bringing it to you, but to go in and be as a child, go in to learn. Well, I started with my husband by asking him when we first married, I said, will you please teach me what you can about Native American culture and ceremony because I want to be honorable and do the right thing. And, and we're traveling into these reservations and we're hanging out with all these Native people. I don't want to be offensive because I was aware of how many things had happened to the First Nations people, to my people, you know, out of ignorance. And I, I didn't want to compound that. So he said he would. And a few weeks later, we were in Alaska packing up his belongings to move to Tennessee, where we would reside together after we married. And this would be my first lesson on Native protocol from him. Because, But in order to tell you the story, I have to backtrack a little bit to give you the background on the story. My husband had a Native American friend from Alaska named Mary, and she asked him one time if he had his mother's nose. And she meant in asking that, do you look like your mother? You know, do you have her nose, her structure of her face. And Sakina made a joke out of it, which he often does. And he said, yeah, I have my mother's nose at home in a jar. And they laughed about it, you know, but he didn't drop it there. He went to a novelty shop and bought a rubber nose and put it in a clear glass jar with water in it. And I mean, this looked like a real nose floating in formaldehyde. And he took it and showed it to her and they both had an even bigger laugh, you know. And then he brought it home and he set it next to his sink forgot all about it. When I got to Alaska to help pack up his things for the move, I'm in the kitchen packing the dishes and I see this nose floating in what looks like formaldehyde in a jar next to his sink. And I was like wondering, gosh, am I marrying a, you know, a Jeffrey Dahmer or someone? Am, am I marrying somebody that takes people's body parts and puts them in formaldehyde? I was like, I'm going to have to ask him, you know, so I figure I better asked whose nose it was and why it was in his in a jar next to his sink. So I walked into the room where he was packing and I stuck out my hand. I was holding the jar in my hand with the nose in it. And I said, can you, can you explain this to me? 
without skipping a beat, he goes, oh, oh, that's my mother's nose. When a mother dies, her son in the Inupiat tradition, her son becomes the keeper of her nose. But when the son marries, his wife becomes the keeper of the nose. If I precede you in death, then you will bury the nose with me. But if you precede me in death, then I will take the nose back and become the keeper of the nose again. As the keeper of the nose, you must make sure that the nose is kept safe. This is a sacred Inupiat tradition. Well, I wrapped that nose in bubble wrap and I put it into my purse to make sure it was safe at all times. I, you know, and I had a part of Sukina's mother with me and I wasn't going to let anything happen to her. So I carted her around in my purse all the way back to Tennessee. And when we got to our home in Nashville, I put it next to the sink in our home because I was trying to follow protocol. And that was the sacred place that we I'd found it next to a sink. So I thought this must be where the nose goes. So I put it next to my sink in Alaska and watched over it when I washed the dishes. And, and then we moved back to Alaska some months later. I wrapped it up in bubble wrap again, and I carried it to our home in Alaska and then placed it next to the sink there since that was the first place that I had found it. Now, you see, that's how traditions of men get started. We pick up on something, and then, see, I put it back next to the sink. I, I had no idea. It, I just put it there, and that, that was how it was going to get started. The sacred place for the mother's nose in the Inupiat tradition is next to the sink where you can be watching it all the time. For a few months in Alaska, I watched over his mother's nose until I came in one day and saw it stuck to his leg. And I remember I gasped, and he because it was sacred to me, and he threw it up against the wall, and it stuck to the wall. That's when I realized it was never his mother's nose. It was a wax counterfeit nose. And the whole story been a ruse. You know, when you think about the traditions of men, I think we probably have done some of those things. They've made, made things holy because the fathers of the faith before us, some of them have done things. And we've thought that that was biblical. And some of the stuff that we've done is not even probably scriptural. It's been passed down to us, like Sukina's tradition of the Inupiat mother's nose. And we're carrying things around and taking care of things that God never asked us to. I was learning about the Native American sense of humor through this and also about their propensity for practical jokes, of which they never stop coming, which is probably why our people have been so resilient with all they've been through. Being teachable is risky, but it's not without great reward. What does it mean to be teachable? It means we don't think we have everything figured out and we're willing to learn something new. A teachable heart begins with humility. That's the foundation. And not thinking we know everything. It means we're willing to learn more than we already know. John Maxwell states that teachability is not so much about competence and mental capacity as it is about attitude. He says that it's the desire to learn, unlearn, and relearn. That's what I was just talking to you about, about having to unlearn so many things and then relearn things. It's the desire to listen, learn, and apply. It's the hunger to discover and grow. In order to be teachable, there are certain things required of us. One is that 
We have to check our ego and we have to embrace humility. The hierarchy paradigm where I can't learn from them because they're beneath me or I can't learn from that because that's an animal. That hierarchy paradigm of thinking has to be put away. We can learn from everyone and everything, from nature and even from our own circumstances. Every moment is a teachable moment. Being teachable means that we take what information from others that comes our way by watching their lives to learn from their actions or even getting feedback from them concerning our own lives. Now, this doesn't mean we have to agree with everything they bring to us or anything that they say to us about us, but that we thank them for their input and then we keep the meat of what they have given to us and spit out the bones. And if it doesn't apply to us, it doesn't apply. But it's being willing. And that's an area that I'm consistently having to work on. John Maxwell also states that we need to cultivate an open mind by being flexible, unprejudiced, and without stubbornness. Being teachable is a prerequisite for wisdom. We can't be wise and be unteachable. The scriptures even say that the Holy Spirit is our teacher. The Spirit of God is the author of teachability. And as we apply what we've learned from God, it transforms our character and changes us for the better. Dave Kraft, in his book on teachability, says that being teachable is foundational to spiritual growth and the building of our character. And he says that if a leader isn't teachable, then they're going to be resistant to hearing instruction both from God and from others. And this means that that leader will likely make little progress when it comes to personal growth or spiritual maturity. The unteachable leader will eventually fall into other sins or compulsions and disqualify themselves. And this is really sad, you know, and it's all too frequent what we see today in faith-based institutions where people are falling by the way. And and, And none of us are beyond that or above that, myself included. There are times in our lives when we may need to make adjustments in our lives. We may have veered off the path we've been on, and we need to readjust our sails in order to reach our destination. These are times when being teachable is not only about growth, but it's about saving our lives from the pitfalls that will bring much heartache and pain. If we're teachable, the odds are in our favor that we'll be able to take in the necessary wisdom that we need at that time to correct our direction toward life and away from heartache. This is where repentance and teshuva comes in, where wisdom speaks that we need to make a correction and we make a radical turn and return back from where we have strayed from God's will for our lives. In 12-step recovery, the 11th step states, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God praying only for God's will for us and the power to carry that out. I love this step. It's one of my favorites of the 12 steps. And I think of it as the step after our teshuva or return. We realign ourselves with his will for our lives, not our will for our lives. We're teachable, we're open, we're humble, and we're asking him to reveal his will for our lives. And then he gives us the power from on high to carry out his will. It's not us trying to psych up some type of power, make it happen, or carry it ourselves. True repentance involves being teachable at its foundation. 
I was given a gift by a doctor I had many years back, and, I, and I'd like to pass that gift on to you today that drives this point home about being teachable and being willing to learn and, and, and to shuva, being willing to turn around, to go back to that place where we, we, we veered off the path. And, and we can do that today. I'm in a season in my life right now where I'm doing that as well, where I'm taking this time where I'm going through suffering and, and distress, and I'm, I'm using that time as a catalyst in my life to kind of revamp some things and turn, return back to some things with God where I've kind of veered off the path. And that can happen with all of us. Life pulls us in every direction. I was told this story by a doctor who was treating me from my illness uh, years ago. And it came to me at a time in my life when I was open spiritually and emotionally because my suffering had made me an eager student of life's lessons. The doctor told me that he'd been the physician for this woman who was dying of lung cancer. He had treated her for several years, and the time had come for her to surrender as she'd done all she could do to live. The cancer had finally taken over not only her lungs, but her whole body. The doctor received a call from her family asking him to come to her hospice bed because she had something that was so important she had to share with him, and she was adamant that he come. So the doctor agreed to stop by so she could deliver her last words to him. When he arrived at her bedside, she told him that she'd been given a gift and that she felt she was to pass the gift on to him. His job would be to pass this gift on to others, and he would intuitively know who that should be. She shared with the doctor that she'd been given a dream. The dream was so real to her, and it contained this profound message. Her last act, this side of the veil, would be to pass the message on to others. And I was given this message, and so today I'm passing this message on to you as a gift from this woman. She then began to tell the dream to the doctor. She said that in the dream, she was walking down a street, and it was a beautiful day. The clouds in the sky, they were like a fluffy white, and the sun was bright. The temperature was perfect, not too hot, not too cold. And she was walking down an alley in a residential neighborhood, and the the backyards were separated uh, the neighborhood, she was in the area where the backyards of the houses were, and there were no fences, so she could see up into each backyard where she was walking the alley in the back there. As she passed the houses along the way, she came upon a house with a large backyard. And in the backyard, up close to the house, and since it was a large backyard, it was way far away from her, was a large upholstery chair that had an old man with long white hair sitting in the chair. And in his lap was this cat, and he was gently petting this cat. The woman was so confused now because the cat was screaming so loudly as if the cat were being tortured, and yet the old man just stroked the cat. He just kept stroking the cat gently. And the woman could see that the old man was speaking softly to the cat, But because the cat was screeching so loudly and she was so far away, she couldn't hear what the old man was saying to the cat. But she knew it was not bad because he was petting the cat so gently and speaking so softly. So in her curiosity, she, she dared to walk into the backyard where the old man was sitting with the cat. She just wanted to get up close enough so she could hear what he was saying to the cat. And as she got closer she could see that the old man was petting the cat against the 
the grain of the cat's hair. And the cat was having none of it. You might say the old man was rubbing the cat the wrong way. And now that she was close enough to finally hear and understand what he was saying, as he stroked the cat ever so gently, he was saying ever so softly, Turn around. Turn around. Turn around. As the doctor finished telling me the story the woman had given to him, he said, My patient gave me this story as a gift as she was dying. She said I would know who to entrust it to, and I'm giving it to you to entrust to others. I was really overwhelmed with gratitude because for me that was a sacred gift, and the message was clear for me. The message was about certain laws of the universe. They're in effect whether we like them or not or believe them or not. And as a person of faith, my interpretation was that the creator of the universe has some of those in effect like the Torah, like the scripture asserting things. And if we try to have it our own way, we may find consequences at play that we won't enjoy. That, in fact, could be quite tormenting. Like the cat, there have been times in my life when I wanted God to fix things in my life and dispel the law of gravity for me, so to speak. But I found out that I must learn to deal with life on life's terms and that I could not control every detail of my own destiny I would struggle and scream and hiss. We can accuse the maker of the universe for not caring, be too harsh and causing us pain, when all that we really have to do or that he's asking us to do is to simply turn around, teshuva. That's what the teshuva is about. It's about turning around. I guess I'll call this story from now on the teshuva story instead of the cat story. I'm so grateful I was given a profound and priceless gift by this woman, a dying woman, and it has powerfully impacted my life. And now I've passed it on to you. I'm going to ask you if you would sit with that today and and see what it says to you and what you might do with it. I thank you for being with me today, um, taking the time for yourself, giving me some time in your life because time is valuable This side of eternity, it's finite, and so every second counts. Um, If you would like to see some of the resources we have, you can go to our website, indigenousmessengers.com, and go to the store there. You can also donate donate to our ministry. Everything we do is by people donating in, even this podcast. Uh, You can make donations there. And I want to remind everyone, too, of the gathering in Richmond, Virginia. That's July. I think it's the 14th, 15th, and 16th in Richmond, Virginia. We will have more information on that. You can also go and join my Facebook, Kwame Robin Sukina. You can go on the Facebook there. We'll have stuff posted there about it, too. It's going to be a really amazing time. First Nations speakers, First Nations worship, honoring Israel. And we will also have the Jewish people with us as well. Um, my husband is is a very wonderful artist. He's going to he has his art on there as well. We're going to be selling his art for Indigenous Messengers International to help finance our ministry, so that we can continue to do the things God's laid on our hearts to do. And as I always do, I want to remember my children and my grandchildren today. This is my ethical will that I'm doing for them. I'm leaving the the stories that God has given me, the lessons God has given me, I'm leaving them behind to them. I love and honor each one of them, and I dedicate this podcast to them. 
Thank you for listening to Beatitudes with Dr. Kwamenik Sukina. Be sure to follow the show for more tools on how to experience wisdom in your everyday life for you to walk in victory with the right attitude.